Numbers 5, verses 1 through 4, the quarantine or segregation law. Numbers 5, verses 1 through 4. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, and every one that hath an issue, and whosoever is defiled by the dead. Both male and female shall ye put them out, without the camp shall ye put them, that they defile not their camps in the midst whereof I dwell. And the children of Israel did so, and put them out without the camp, as the Lord spake unto Moses, so did the children of Israel. The sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, has as its implication the preservation and furthering of life within the framework of God's law. And basic to this task of preservation are the laws of quarantine. These laws take up a great many chapters of the Mosaic law. And the passage we just read is just a brief summary of one aspect of these laws. Leviticus 13, 14, and 15, three very long chapters, give many specific details of these laws, as do passages in Exodus and a couple of chapters as well in Deuteronomy. It is important to understand the significance of these chapters. The details of these quarantine or segregation laws are not now applicable because they referred to conditions that have changed, but the principles are still valid. Before we analyze these laws, it is important to call attention to the fact that words sometimes have varying meanings. And the word leprosy appears repeatedly in these chapters. It means one thing to us. When we hear the word leprosy, we think of Hansen's disease. The Bible, however, as Dr. A. Rendell Short, a British surgeon, has pointed out in a study of these laws, uses the term leprosy as a general term for a variety of contagious and highly infectious diseases. So that very often in these chapters, the word plague is also used, another general term, as equivalent to the term leprosy. Thus, the word has a broader application than what we think of as being leprosy or Hansen's disease. These laws, incidentally, helped eradicate leprosy or Hansen's disease to a great extent from Europe, because as they were applied in the Middle Ages, they worked together with other measures to reduce it to the vanishing point, virtually. Now the laws in Leviticus 13, 14, and 15 in particular are of two varieties, those dealing with a variety of plagues and infectious diseases, Leviticus 13.1 through 15.15, and those dealing with uh, 
sex in chapter 15, 16 through 33. Incidentally, the number of laws dealing with sex, which we will deal with in relation to the seventh commandment, do prohibit, among other things, the association of sex with worship. Now, to us, this seems perhaps a remote problem. But this was, in those days, a very, very lively problem because, in antiquity, the fertility cult, which prevailed throughout the world, made acts of sex basic to worship so that attendance at the temple involved ritual prostitution for both male and female and a variety of acts of perversion. About 20 years ago, a little more in fact, I called attention at a church meeting to the fact that this association was due to rise again, that everything pointed to the revival of sex as central to religious worship. I did so when I read the work of a prominent theologian, Robert Bontius, who wrote, and I quote, the act of intercourse is itself to serve as an outward and visible symbol of communion, not merely between man and wife, but with God, unquote. This from a book, Christian Paths to Self-Acceptance, published in 1948. And clearly, this element has become prominent in the life of the churches today. And sex is closely linked with revolution. To return to the laws of quarantine, these laws covered diseases, the handling of the dead, epidemics, plague, and the like. But the laws have implications beyond the realm of physical diseases. And a variety of statements embedded in these quarantine laws make it clear that even as physical contagion must be avoided and steps taken to that end, so likewise moral contagion and contamination must be avoided. Leviticus 18 verses 1 through 5 and verse 24 and 30 and Leviticus 20 verses 22 to 24, these statements are made, and God in the latter passage, Leviticus 20, verses 22 through 24, identifies himself as the God who separates his people from other people as a part of their salvation, so that God calls his people apart, segregates them, in order that he might further their preservation and their salvation. Separation or segregation, quarantine, is thus a basic principle of biblical law, not only with respect to plagues and contagious diseases, but with respect to religion and morality. Every attempt to destroy this principle is an effort to reduce society to the lowest common denominator. The word toleration, of course, is greatly used in our day as an excuse. 
The concept of toleration usually conceals a radical intolerance. As Christians, we believe in grace and in charity towards all people. But toleration embodies another principle, that of relativism. What the doctrine of toleration, as it is commonly taught, involves is a relativism which says that we must not make any difference between the criminal and the law-abiding person, between the pervert and the morally sound man, between the believer and the unbeliever, that all must be put on the same level. In actuality, however, this doctrine of toleration conceals a radical intolerance. In the name of tolerance, the believer is asked to tolerate everything because the unbeliever tolerates nothing. It means life on the enemy's terms. Biblical law is in effect denied the right to exist because all things in terms of this modern doctrine of toleration must be leveled downward. And we can have no standards. We must be totally tolerant. An example of this kind of intolerance in the name of tolerance appeared in the papers recently, and of course you can find one almost every week. This from the Ann Landers column, and I quote, Dear Ann Landers, why do you pin orchids on the virgins without knowing the facts? If you could see some of those white flower girls, you'd know they couldn't give it away. Why not use your valuable newspaper space to praise the sought-after sexy girl who is constantly chased by men and is sometimes caught? I'm a woman in my middle forties who has worked ten years with young girls in a steno pool. I see the goody-goody types in their little white shirt, white shirtwaist blouses in Oxford, so smug and proud of their chastity as if they had a choice. They make me sick. Only last Friday, a darling little redhead, just 21, sobbed out her story in the ladies' room. Lucy had been jilted by an executive after six months of steady courtship. They'd been intimate, and she was counting on marriage. It was the fourth time she'd had this terrible thing happen to her. Girls like Lucy need Ann Landers to tell them that they aren't all bad. Give them encouragement, not a put-down. I've been reading your silly column for 12 years, and I think you are a perfect fool, Mama Leone. Dear Mama, thanks for the compliment, but nobody's perfect. I don't happen to have any good conduct medals lying around for girls who think the bedroom is a shortcut to the author. Moreover, a girl who makes the... Same mistake four times is what I call, in polite language, a non-learner. <laughs> now, this letter, of course, clearly reveals a bitter hatred of virtue, together with a strong sympathy for the promiscuous girl, who is seen as the finer person, emphatically so. There is no tolerance in this letter, only a savage intolerance. And this, of course, is the order of the day. Those who demand tolerance are really among the most intolerant of people. 
We do not, as Christians, believe in tolerating evil. We do not believe in tolerating assault on decency. We do believe in Christian grace and charity, which recognizes that there are differences and then moves with the grace of God as well as the law of God in terms of the situation. The basic premise of the modern doctrine of toleration is that all religious and moral positions are equally true and equally false. It is a radical relativism and humanism. We are asked to treat the Muslim as though Islam were as true as biblical faith. To treat the cannibal as though his practices are as valid morally as ours. This is not only the implicit claim, but it has been explicitly stated by a number of writers. The premise of their argument is, since there is no truth, how dare anyone place his truth above the other, so that the cannibal is morally as fine a person in terms of his standards as the Christian is in terms of his. In other words, there is no particular truth or moral value to any religion. Now these people, of course, when they are trying to make you destroy your doctrine of truth, your absolute, have always a hidden absolute, and their absolute is man. Since man is his own ultimate, man is his own God, there can be no law, no standard over men whereby men are to be judged. And this, of course, is precisely the purpose of the modern revolutionary activity. One of the leaders of the Yippies, who was most active in Chicago and is at present under indictment, stated that the outsider failed to understand the significance of the use of narcotics, of LSD and other narcotics, in the present revolution. Their purpose, he said, is to destroy all sense of discrimination, of distinction, of moral value. And the purpose of dirt, on their part, is the same, to make us realize that we cannot use standards to evaluate people, because man is the only value. And therefore, all men are of equal value. They do thus have a standard and absolute man. And in terms of this, they are savagely intolerant of our doctrine of truth. For them, thus, the true value being man himself, man must be granted total acceptance irrespective of his character. This, of course, is not a new doctrine. It has been developing since the beginning of the Enlightenment. It gained particularly vocal expression in this country in Walt Whitman, who dedicated himself to proclaiming this doctrine. In his form to a common prostitute, of course, he made this point emphatically and declared, not till the sun excludes you do I exclude you. 
In fact, in a number of other poems, he made it clear that such a person, the pervert, the prostitute, the prostitute, and others, were superior because they did not have religious and moral standards. Total acceptance, total integration is demanded by relativistic humanism. And this is clearly radically anti-Christian. It places man in God's stead and in the name of toleration and equality relegates Christianity to the dump heap. This doctrine, unfortunately, is preached all too often in the churches. In the past week, one document that came across my desk was the Fuller Seminary Theology News and Notes with an article in it, The Suffering Body, by Lewis B. Smead, who teaches at Calvin College in the seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And the whole point of his thesis, of course, is quite close to the death of God's school of thinking. He identifies God wholly with man. And as he interprets the incarnation, he says, let us say, God and ghettoed himself. Now this is the meaning of the incarnation, the ghettoizing of God. So that if we want to look for the incarnation, we must look for the ghetto. If we want to find Christ, we have to find him in man, in the ghetto. Integration and equality are myths. They disguise simply a new segregation and a new inequality. Mama Leone's letter, which I read, makes clear that promiscuity is for her superior to virginity and chastity. And with her, there is clearly a new segregation. Virtue is subjected to hostility and scorn and is separated in effect for destruction. Every social order inescapably institutes its own program for separation and segregation. A particular faith and morality is given privileged status, and all else is separated for progressive elimination. Every law order, which every society has, says that certain things are good and certain things are bad, so that it involves a fundamental segregation. Every law order says there is a criminal class and a good class. The criminal class may be the murderer and the thief and the pervert, or it may be the capitalist. It may be the man who believes in free enterprise or unsocialized medicine and unsocialized dentistry, but every law order institutes a form of segregation. It uses equality and integration as a pretext to subvert the older or existing form of social order. For example, the communists, in the name of ending all segregation, 
all inequality. Worked for the revolution, promised the peasants that the palaces would be there, that they would all live in palaces, all men would have the same income. And then when the revolution was over, of course, promptly, instituted the most radical inequality and segregation that Russia had ever seen. One observer in the 20s, during the days of the famine, in talking to the people of Russia during the Hoover relief, was told by some of them that they deserved what they were getting, because they had listened to this talk about equality and had been ready to plunder and to kill, figuring that when they drove out the inhabitants of the palaces and the good homes, they would become the possessors of them and they would have the equivalent. But they ended up in greater poverty. Every society has its laws of separation, segregation, in terms of what constitutes for it good and what constitutes for it evil. Education, of course, is a form of segregation and a basic instrument thereof. Certain aspects of life, of experience, are given priority as truth and others are relegated to a position of unimportance or class as wrong. Education, because it passes or fails, is inescapably given to inequality and segregation. It classifies all reality in terms of certain standards. When the state takes over control of education, it then begins to reorder in terms of its standards. It denies to people the right to maintain its schools, their own private schools, as happens in countries that turn socialist, so that only the state's principle of segregation, of separation, can exist. The state then excludes from the curriculum everything which points to the truth of biblical faith and establishes a new doctrine of truth. In the name of objective reason, it insists that its highly subjective hostility to all its enemies be regarded as the new law of being. The fact of quality, of course, is what we are saying segregates. The fact of the ability to work segregates. The existence of a home, of a house, segregates. The fact of family life segregates. Every family is a segregated institution. This is not my statement. This is the statement of James Bryant Conant, former president of Harvard, former high commissioner of Germany, prominent chemist, who has said that as long as we are dedicated to the proposition that democracy and equality are desirable, the family is a roadblock to a realization of our institutions. 
In Education in a Divided World, published in 48 by Harvard University Press. He stated that the family was dedicated to the principle of aristocracy. Because every family sought to do the best for its children. It was thus an aristocratic institution, alien, alien to our democracy. And therefore, there was, he said, an inescapable conflict between the two. It doesn't take much guessing to find out which he feels must lose. The word segregation is a good word. It has been much abused. It has been abused by people who want to make color or race the only principle of segregation rather than a principle of truth, a principle of achievement. It has been abused by those who are trying to destroy our present law order and create a revolutionary society. It is being used also by the United Nations, which says there can be no discrimination with respect to a variety of things, such as race, color, or creed, so that all religions are, in effect, abolished because they discriminate. They declare their position to be the truth. The UN Charter, when it makes this statement, is informed by a radical humanism. So it replaces the old religions with the new religion, humanism. All religions segregate, and humanism is no exception. Its order of truth becomes the principle of division of classification and of segregation. And it becomes most hostile and most discriminatory. It segregates most radically because it insists on total control of all institutions and denies the liberty of other orders of truth, of other doctrines to establish their own community, their own way of life. The biblical law, then, is a principle of segregation. It is the only valid principle because it strikes both against the humanistic totalitarian principle it strikes against the racists who want to reduce it to a, an older humanistic and non-religious premise. It strikes against every order that places man above truth or makes one segment of mankind the order of truth. Commandment, thou shalt not kill, means therefore that we must segregate between truth and error, between the murderer and the godly man. Because if we do not institute a principle of segregation between the two, we destroy society. 
If the murderer is not dealt with, the murderer then will soon take over society if the thief is not prosecuted, if he is not segregated, if his way of life is not declared to be socially undesirable and legislated against, then we will have only a society of thieves. St. Paul, as he summarized the Old Testament laws of quarantine and of separation, declared in 2 Corinthians 6.17, that it should be summed up in a sentence, Come ye out from among them, and be ye separate. Thus saith the Lord. This, then, is the basic principle of progress, to draw a line of separation between good and evil, between a learned man and an ignorant man, between a thief and an honest man, between a quack and a good practitioner, between every kind. Come ye out from among them, and be ye separate. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee that thou hast called us by thy grace to be a people unto thee. And we pray, our Father, that by thy grace we may reorder men and society in terms of thy thoughtful. That evil may be suppressed and dealt with first. The truth and righteousness may prosper and abound. That by thy grace we may deal with the sick and the ailing, the brokenhearted and the needy. May become a society where truth and righteousness prosper. Bless us for this purpose, our Father, and grant that we may contend unto victory for the powers of darkness in this generation. In Jesus' name, Amen. Are there any questions now, first of all, with respect to our lesson? Yes. doctrine that a man is innocent until proven guilty is an unusual doctrine in history. It comes only out of biblical law. 
We shall deal with this when we come to the Eighth Commandment. It is unique in history. In every other law system, you are guilty until you prove yourself innocent. And the burden of proof is on you. Unfortunately, this pagan doctrine of justice in the modern era has progressively been instituted in various countries. It is now the law, for example, in France. There, when you are arrested, you are guilty. And the entire burden and the expense is on you to prove yourself innocent. So that you carry the burden of expense. Unfortunately, this European Napoleonic system, basically a humanistic form of justice, has come into this country in two areas. In military law. In military law, you are guilty and you prove yourself innocent. And in administrative law, you are guilty until you prove yourself innocent. Now what is happening is that this is creeping over into our civil and criminal law. In our criminal law, the criminal, or the man who is arrested, is innocent until he is proven guilty. So the burden is on the court, that is, on the, the community, the district attorney, to prove him guilty. However, increasingly, because restitution is denied, and because there is a, a progressive handcuffing of the prosecution, Everything is stacked in favor of the criminal, so that he is not merely brought to court innocent, but in a sense, the people, and the prosecution is in the name of the people, are the guilty ones. It is as though they had committed some kind of offense in arresting the man, so that he is given every kind of privilege. This last week, for example, one man who was under indictment for nine cases of rape, plus one of kidnapping and one for armed robbery, and was out on bail on all of these, and very light bail, was again picked up this time for an assault on a small child, a sexual assault. Now, of course, this is more than protecting his rights. This is, in a sense, saying that prosecution is invalid. Now, what will happen in this case, as in most such cases, is because the uh, uh, difficulty of prosecution is so great as a result of recent court decisions, even though this man is obviously guilty, there will be a settlement out of court. An agreement between his attorney, who may well be provided at state expense, your expense and mine, that if he will plead guilty on one or two counts, the others will be dismissed. So that he will get a light term and for a light term. Otherwise, the court will be blocked endlessly by various maneuvers. 
So today the biblical principle of legal procedure is being subverted. But we must say that a man is innocent until proven guilty. This is for the protection of all of us. That protection is being progressively destroyed as the cards are stacked in favor of the obviously criminal. No, uh, the right of appeal is a part of biblical law, and the appeal went on up to the supreme judge, that is, the governor of Israel, and later to the king. There is a right of review, but today. The right of review is only since we've gone from common law to statute law in terms of the technical aspects of the law. In other words, the man may be innocent in view of new evidence, but that new evidence cannot be heard. The appeal is only on the grounds of the technical conduct of the trial. Yes. Isn't masonry a one-world religion type of faith? And the answer is clearly yes. And Pike, Smalls, and Dogma very emphatically affirm the radical one-world religion, one-world political order, humanism. And the question then is, why was George Washington a mason? Well, first of all, at that time, masonry was fairly new, and second, Washington accepted all kinds of honorary memberships in a variety of organizations out of courtesy. He accepted such a membership. When a minister wrote to him in his retirement or in the last days of his presidency, he was well along in the 1790s, asking him about his membership, he uh, said, well, uh, he couldn't very well call himself much of a member. He had, had attended one meeting for sure when he was given the honorary membership. He may have attended a second sometime along the line when he has an honor to him someplace, but he didn't think so. So he said, at the most, perhaps, I've been at two Masonic functions. So he said, I've never thought of myself as such. But later on, when Jedediah Morris, the Reverend Jedediah Morris, and others called attention to some of these aspects of masonry, Washington agreed with them properly and dropped it. But uh, a great deal has been made by the nations of his membership, and most people have the impression that he was a lifelong practicing nation. This is not the truth. Mm. 
there are a great many things you read that are not to be trusted, but we have his own letters from his collected works on the subject, and in his latter years saying that in the 30 years since he had been taken in as a kind of an honorary thing, he knew he'd attended once, and maybe a second time he'd been present at something that was in the chronic center or something, but he wasn't sure. So he can't uh, take some of this propaganda too literally. Uh, it's been said that uh, Washington was at most a Unitarian, obviously not a Christian, and a book was written recently by a Methodist minister to prove this. When uh, Washington, we would say, was far more extreme in his religious practices in his day than most, because he fasted every Sunday and went to his room for meditation, Bible reading, and prayer, refused to receive company except family and members on Sunday. He also, and I've mentioned this before, uh, from the French and Indian War on to the War of Independence, had a standing order that there would be no taking of the Lord's name in vain by any soldier. If they did, they were to receive 20 lashes. Because uh, in a cause where they sought the Lord's guidance and deliverance, uh, take the Lord's name in vain would be a fearful effect. Now you can see how long he'd last in the army today with that kind of a standing order, 20 lashes for taking the Lord's name in vain. Uh, Washington would be very unpopular in this day and age because he was so old-fashioned and strict even for his day and age. But the myths about Washington are legion. Yes. Yes. First of all, you can never convince a man that this way is wrong unless you do establish a standard. And a standard is necessary. It constitutes an example. To cite an example, I worked for some years as a missionary among the American Indians on an isolated Indian reservation. Now, there, far more than here, everything I did had to be done with circumspection. Because, first of all, everything I did, in a sense, was a witness. It was a missionary act. It was a way of making clear to them that there is a higher standard of living so that it was extremely important to be careful of every act and to draw the line much more sharply than I would say here. But at the same time, when you combine this with Christian grace and charity, it had a tremendous effect. Now, the difference, for example, between the average government employee on that reservation 
which is a hundred miles from any town or bus or train line. It was only a slight level above that of the Indians. Most of the government employees looked down on the Indians, refused to associate with them, did not have them in their homes, discriminated against them very savagely. But most of the government employees, like most of the Indians, were alcoholics. And their sexual morality was not on a much higher level than that of the Indians. But my home had to be open always, and I enjoyed having them in. I genuinely liked them. I enjoyed listening to their stories. I never at any point relaxed my standards. But because I approached them with grace and with a liking for them and with charity, you see, there was a communication of standards. Of course, the basic aspect is always conversion. But you can never be an instrument in the conversion of people if you lack that grace, that desire to communicate. But you never communicate to them if you destroy your own standards. And those are the whites there who uh, would come and try to get on the level of the Indians by acting that way were despised. Because they knew there was a difference. They knew they were not on a standard they should be. They knew their obvious inferiority in their way of life and their standards and all. They were never going to cotton to somebody who was condescending at this point. But they did respond to Clinton. Yes? No, uh, it didn't mean he became one of them and said there is no difference between us. He never said that. He never said good and evil are on the same level, and morality and immorality are on the same level. But he approached them with grace and with the word of salvation. It was physical in the sense that he did not make their way of life his way of life. Yes, one last question. No, uh, that wasn't what I had in mind, but I would admire their uh, courage in saying this our community wants this, we'll go ahead and do it. 
It is not properly lawless because the scriptures, uh, the uh, Supreme Court has not been faithful to the historic American law at this point. But I would say as long as they do not compel religious practices of those in the past who do not want to participate in them, there's nothing wrong with what they're doing. They are establishing a standard and uh, they are not using it to club anyone. You see, we either have to have a standard or we destroy all societies. We either segregate very clearly, and we're doing this all the time. Everyone who's in any vocation segregates continually. It's a good word, although it has been put to very ugly use. Without it, there is no standard of life, no standard of cleanliness, no standard of health and sickness. The very term sickness is a segregating term. It separates the particular condition from all other conditions. And it's only as you denominate it as a sickness that you can see it. Until then, you cannot. And you so denominate it that you may be able to treat it. Now, this is Christian segregation. You don't uh, call something false in order to say, well, off with their head. But the society may be able to deal with it. With the murderer, yes, he must die. But with the others, you try where possible to bring them to a conformity which they never can have until they know their condition is wrong. This is the process of education. In education, you can continually tell the child, this is misspelled, this is wrong. You segregate this spelling from, from that. We only learn as we do this progressively. Well, our time is up now. Sure, sure.